As we were talking about art, I was thinking of a couple of scripture passages at the very beginning of the Bible, the very first verse in the beginning. God created. God is this creative deity. And a few uh, chapters later, it says that we, humanity, who come from the red dirt and earth of our planet, who have been breathed into by the Spirit of God, are made as image bearers of a holy God. And this word image is the root of imagination. So we are called to be creative, imaginative beings, just as was shared this evening, regardless of what sector or field or work that we do. We're called to embody this creativity and this imagination to bring about newness into the world. So it is Black History Month. And as I recently heard, it put so well, black history does not begin with the enslavement of African people in the Americas. It begins at the very beginning of civilization, the cradle of civilization. Black history begins at the very beginning of the human story. And for a couple of us, who went on a field trip last Sunday to uh, Black Disciples of Christ Church out in Brooklyn and Bedstuy, some of this story might sound a little bit familiar. Last Sunday morning, a few of us who've been discussing the Brooklyn Peace Church plant, we went to another church that was doing a PowerPoint presentation and a history of Bedford-Stuyvesant um, and how it's changed um, through the generations. And we were invited there, and the pastor of the church, as some denominations are, uh, tend to do, he invited me up as a fellow pastor, which was a little, I was a little bit surprised, not quite. And he's like, come and sit here. And so then I sat there, and we're sitting, and then he says, you got a word, right? And I said, I got a word, brother. And so then he called me up, and I gave a little word. Um, and so I kind of want to share, basically, that message or that that story that I shared uh, last Sunday at this church, it begins in, in my work at the Bowery Mission, where in Black History Month, this February, in different areas that I am responsible for or steward, the spiritual formation areas, we've been going through the book of Exodus. During chapel, every Friday, we've been listening to the scriptures told uh, like an audio Bible. We've been listening to the book of Exodus every Friday. We have a Bible study where we're going through the book of Exodus. So I've kind of been steeped in this book that takes place in Africa, in the story of liberation and emancipation. We are often quite familiar with this story, but before I go on, please allow me to read our scripture passage from Exodus 14 verses 21 to 25, as is found in our bulletin. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them. All of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers, 
At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. In many ways, this is a story of nonviolent resistance. We don't see the Hebrew people, the Israelites, pick up arms in any way. The only arms they ever pick up is their own arms in worship of the Holy One in this entire passage. And the story begins way back when Joseph becomes the Grand Vizier 430 years before the liberation, second only to Pharaoh. And he brings all of his brothers and siblings and family into Egypt due to the famine. Much like today, when there are climate refugees or other such folks who are struggling in their, uh, in their original homeland, they uproot and they look for a place of security and refuge. And in this time, Egypt was a thriving and burgeoning civilization, so many people groups began to gather in Egypt. And they were welcomed, and they were allotted a portion of land that they could farm and have their families and have community. And over time, over decades and centuries, we see that the Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, forgot the old Pharaoh's deal with these people. And they began to exploit them and oppress them and eventually enslave them. And they finally went to a place where they began to commit infanticide upon the young children, the young boys. Pharaoh had called the head midwives, Shipra and Pua, and said to them, when the male children are born, I want you to kill them. Because the numbers are getting too large. See, the Pharaoh should have known that he should have also been looking out for the females. Because in this story, it begins and it ends with females leading the way into deliverance. We see this beginning with Shipra and Pua, who do not kill any of the young Hebrew boys. Instead, when Pharaoh questions them and says, What happened? Why are all of these boys continuing to be born? Did I not give you a command and a decree? And they said, Well, you see, these Hebrew women, they're just so robust and strong that the babies just come forth before I even get there. And what can I do then? What can I do then? And so they tell a holy lie unto Pharaoh. And so during this time, Moses is born into this world. And they don't want to see their child perish. And so they make a basket made of bitumen and pitch, and they put their young baby boy, little Moses, about three months old, into the basket, and they send him downstream. And as they do this, Miriam, the big sister, she's sent out to watch. And she watches, and they're very strategic because they sent little baby Moses out just when they knew that the Pharaoh's daughter would be bathing in this stream. 
And so Pharaoh's daughter, she is down there, and she's bathing as she walks along the stream. Her servants are on the shore, and they're walking with her and trailing with her. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh's daughter sees this baby, and she says, this must be one of the Hebrew children. And she decides that she'll keep it, and she'll raise it as her own. And just then, the big sister, who later we learn her name is Miriam, says, oh, I know a woman who will be able to serve as a nurse. And that woman just so happens to be Moses' own mother. And she gets paid with full benefits and everything. You can read it in the book of Exodus. So she's being paid. Her home is being provided for by the empire, even though they're an oppressed people. He's able to be raised by his family, but with all the privileges and perks that come with living in the royal house. He knows who he is. He knows his identity. He knows that he is a Hebrew person, and there's no grand reveal for the person of Moses, at least as we read it in the Exodus narrative. So I imagine at times he's conflicted, and we see the impetuousness of his nature when he comes to see a Hebrew slave being brutalized by a relentless taskmaster. And he doesn't know what to do, but Moses feels like he needs to do something. And so he gets involved, and he takes the taskmaster, and he ends up murdering him. Maybe hoping that he would be seen as some kind of a folk hero among his own people. But instead, some time passes, and there are two Hebrew men in conflict, and they're arguing, and Moses walks upon them and says, Brothers, let us not fight. Probably feeling very altruistic, some noble savior of his own people, but not yet coming to the fruition and maturity of the calling, still fully in his own ego and self. He says, Let us not fight. And they said, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill us like you killed the taskmaster? And then he realizes that people know what he's done. And that when Pharaoh, when his adopted grandfather, find out what he's done, that he will face imminent execution. And so he leaves as a fugitive. And he goes into the wilderness and he's there for many, many years, even decades. And while he's there, he meets his wife, Zipporah. He becomes a shepherd, and he wanders in the wilderness. His family is still connected to him as we read the narrative. His family knows where he is. There's still familial relationships occurring during this time, but he's hiding out as a fugitive. And one day as he's walking, the burning bush appears and calls Moses unto the God self and places the calling upon Moses. And Moses says, I'm not worthy and I'm not of eloquent tongue and I can't speak with power as you would have me speak with power to Pharaoh. And God says, I'm the creator of the universe. 
I breathe all things into creation. All of it is held in the palm of my hand. I can help you. And Moses is like, I know you can do a lot of stuff, but I don't think you can help me with this one. And so because of his resistance, God has to find another way. And so finally, God says, well, your brother is very eloquent of speech, and I hear him coming now, and I know that he would love to help you. And so Moses says, okay. And God says, I will be God to you, and you will be as God to your brother Aaron, and you will speak these truths unto Pharaoh. And so time goes on. He returns to Egypt, and he goes into Pharaoh's court, and we know the story. Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and so he has to continue to return and say, well, there will be this plague, and this plague, and this plague, and regardless of how many gnats, or how many mice, or if the entire Nile River is turned to blood, no matter what, Pharaoh's heart stays hard. Until at the very end, when God says, I'm going to send my death angel, and he's going to take the firstborn of every household and even of every animal. He says, Hebrew people, you're going to have to take an unblemished lamb and slaughter it and take its blood and put it on the sides of your door and on the top of your door so that you'll be covered in the lamb's blood. But don't put it on the floor because you're not to trample the blood of the lamb. And then roast this lamb and feast well. And while you're eating and supping at the dinner table, have your shoes on, wear your jacket, and have your stuff packed. Because you need to be ready to go. God had also told Moses to tell the people to borrow all the gold and silver and jewelry and other such things from their neighbors. In a sense, this is an early form of reparations or restorations. And so they gather all of this booty and all of these goods, and the death angel comes. And everyone's crying out and weeping. And just then Moses says, let's go. And so they gather, some say 500,000 Hebrew slaves. And they begin to wander until finally they come to the Red Sea. And they're there. And this is the way that the Lord has brought them. And there's an easier route that they could have taken. But they knew that God knew that if they went that way, it would be too easy for them to come back and fall into the way of Egyptian enslavement out of their own choice. So God takes them on this longer route. And they find themselves on the shore of the Red Sea. And Moses says, what now, O God? I've done everything you've asked me to. What now, O God? And just then it says that he, he raises his arms almost as an act of surrender or as an act of devotion to say, not my way, but your way. Help us, O Lord. There's nothing more that we can do in our own strength. 
Only you can remove this obstacle. And I imagine that all the people begin to also raise their arms at this time. And as we read in the Scriptures, it says that a strong east wind began to come and gather the water and pull it back. Another word for wind in the Scripture is spirit. Spirit begins to move in new and mighty ways to remove this obstacle. And it's not immediate. It says all night long His arms are extended. And all night long the Spirit is moving and the wind is removing the obstacle. And just then they look back and they see the armies of Pharaoh. Not one army. The Scriptures say armies of Pharaoh are coming down violently to destroy or re-enslave the Hebrew people. And so they have an obstacle before them. The enemy is behind them. And Moses has his arms outstretched. And the wind is blowing. And the Spirit is moving. And just as the seas are parted, the first one to take a step of faith in toward the promise is Miriam, the big sister who was looking out for her little brother when he was a baby in a basket. And Miriam and all of the women, they have timbrels and tambourines and these ancient instruments. And they begin to praise God and they begin to worship the Lord. And they move through and we have these songs documented in Exodus, these ancient songs of the people. And they come through. And as they're worshiping and singing praises unto, unto God, and the seas are parted as they make their way through, the waters collapse and crash upon the soldiers who would have taken their lives through worship, in praise, surrender, and devotion, trusting in the Holy One. The great I Am speaks to the Hebrew people. Do not fight. I will fight for you. And so the people come through. So whatever we're going through, whatever we're enduring, have faith. When your back's against the wall and you feel like there's nowhere to turn, worship the living God. Believe and trust. Persevere. And lastly, there's those who were enslaved. Those who were in captivity and then they went into the wilderness. And then they went into the promise. So the journey is before us. Let us continue to have faith and go forward into the promise. Let us pray. Holy One, we praise you and we love you. We thank you that you are love. And that you fight for us. 
We thank you that you do call us to action, to step forward, to walk in faith. Lord, continue to help us and preserve us and sustain us and make us more than overcomers and more than conquerors. Make us into a worshiping people. We love you, Lord. We praise your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.